Nine Set Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. And on today's show, I've got Greg White. So, Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Delighted to be here, mate. Great to be on. For the, for the people that don't know much about you, can you give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do? Crikey, okay. <laughs> um, I, I, I started off life as, a, as an athlete, so I was a modern pentathlete, uh, which is uh, five disciplines, running, swimming, shooting, fencing and show jumping. Um, I was lucky enough to represent Great Britain uh, over 80 times internationally. I won the European uh, bronze medal, a World Championship silver medal, and represented Great Britain at the Olympic Games. Um, at that time, um, when I was competing, I finished in just post '96 after the Atlanta Olympics. There was no money, so you trained. Uh, sorry, you worked or you uh, or you studied, and so therefore I studied at the same time as I was training. And I did an undergraduate degree at what is now Brunel, was Borough Road in sports science, a really rare thing at the time, actually in the mid '80s. Um, I then went on to the U.S. to a place called Fitchburg State University, part of the University of Maryland, uh, where I did an MSc in human performance. Uh, I then came back and did a PhD at St. George's Hospital Medical School uh, in collaboration with um, Wolverhampton University, uh, and that was in cardiovascular function. So it's, uh, it was actually in sudden cardiac death in, in young kids and young athletes in particular. Uh, and then from there, I, I became the director of research for the British Olympic Association at the British Olympic Medical Centre, um, and I looked after the prep of five Olympic teams. I then went on to become the director of science and research at the English Institute of Sport and, and set up science within the English Institute of Sport um, from 2004 to 2006. Uh, and I then took up an academic post um, at Liverpool John Moores, where I've been since as a professor uh, but I also have a clinic in Harley Street um, called the Centre for Health and Human Performance, where effectively it's like the British Olympic Medical Centre, but for, for everyday people. Um, and, then, and then sort of more latterly, I guess people will know some of the stuff I've done with Sport Relief and Comet Relief, some of these really big charity challenges where I've looked after David Williams, Davina McCall, Eddie Azar, John Bishop and those, those guys. Uh, to raise over thirty-five million pounds uh, for people less fortunate than ourselves thus far. So it's been it's been an eclectic life so far, but I think that that's a, a sort of snapshot of it. Well, you've achieved quite quite a lot in a short spot. Not short space this time, but over. A, you could kind of see that transition from the athlete to obviously the academics and then beyond, and. From what you've learned as an athlete and then working with an athlete, has it kind of transferred over to that charity work as well? One hundred percent, actually. I, mean, I think the interesting thing was, I mean, what I mean, I've, I've always been in. I mean, I, I now call it physical activity. You know, I mean, lots of people say that you're a sports scientist. I, I would dare to say that I'm a physical activity scientist. And so, I mean, what I've done really has evolved. I, I, I started off as an elite athlete. I then went to work with elite athletes. Um, and then since then, really, I've sort of evolved that the same approach, um, not only within physiology, but actually across all disciplines. So, so psych, biomech, uh, nutrition, you know, the, the full sort of gamut. Uh, and evolved that into, into, um, into the sort of general populace, if you like, which includes celebrities on big challenges so exactly what i would do for an elite athlete on an ultra endurance is exactly what i do with with 
celebrities, obviously the way in which you prescribe it is wholly individual and, and wholly bespoke. But nonetheless, the, the process is very, very similar. And in fact, now I'm doing quite a lot of work with uh, in, in areas of disease, so particularly in cancer. Uh, and actually, even the physiology, the pathophysiology, the, the bottom line is that the approach and the structure and the system is very, very similar. All you're doing is just individualizing it. And, and that, that's the key. That's the key to, to quality is actually the individualization. And coming back to that point with individualization of and looking more people is is well this is probably in terms of the fitness industry do you believe that they kind of try to I'm not going to generalize that question but do you believe <laughs> that that the industry kind of wants to fit the well as as the trainer or uh, fitness instructor trying to fit what they know onto the person as opposed to fitting the person to the exercise. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that, I mean, it's an interesting one because I think obviously what the problem the, the fitness industry has is that what, what, what they generally, what they're trying to do is provide support across very large populations simultaneously. And I think that, you know, the bottom line, the only way to do that is to, is to generalize. Um, so, so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's fundamentally nothing wrong with that. You know, I mean, I, I write, you know, I've just written a book called Bump Up on Exercise and Pregnancy. Uh, and, and, you know, when you write a book like that, it is generalist in approach. I mean, it's the nature of it. But I think what, 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 what's critical, what, what the fitness industry have to do and what they do very well in some instances uh, is exactly as, as you know you would across any sphere. And that is you take that general information and then what you do is you individualize it to the person that you're working with. So, so the role of, of, of the PT in the fitness industry is absolutely fundamental because it, it's understanding the generalization. It's understanding the concept. But then it's also about how can you individualize it. So it's, it's like understanding the client um, and crucially things like communication, being able to communicate that to the client and why you're changing it and also that ability to adapt and mold as you go through. So, so I think, you know, are, are we a bit generalist? I, I'm not so sure we are. I think that, that what we what we do is we apply what we know in the environment where we are. So, so it has to be general sometimes. But really, if you're going to provide the best possible service to an individual, you have to be bespoke about that. And like you were saying, in terms of you, you've got to generalize it from the start, and and then obviously explain to the the client that why we're changing it so this your your you talk about it a little bit in your 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 book achieve the impossible the, the different scales of success so in terms of that one would you say that was uh, visionary because you're looking at uh using the smart flow chart for their goals in terms of uh what that what they have in mind is it measurable is it realistic and what time frame do they actually want to achieve their goal so, so, so give me that again, James, because I'm just cracking up a little bit there. But just um, The question was, in terms of generalizing the uh, exercise for the person, but you're, when you're changing a program, you're making it individualistic, it kind of ties in with your, your book, Achieve the Impossible, with, in terms of the visionary success, in terms of 
teaching the client uh, is their goal measurable, realistic, and what is the time frame they actually want to achieve their goal? I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what, I guess to some extent, what, what achieve the impossible is about really it is it's about process. Uh, is fundamentally, you know, how do you get from from a generalized approach to an individual approach? And, and I think you know you do that in, in a, a relatively formulaic kind of way. Uh, and I think what I've tried to do with achieve the impossible is sort of just give is overlay my thoughts on what that generalist approach is. So you know, it, without any shadow of doubt, you know, the first place that you start is, is looking at, at, at vision. Uh, and I call it vision, but fundamentally, some people call it goals. But I think you know, goals are critical in terms of delivering, because understanding what somebody's goal is will fundamentally drive what you do with them. And, and I think sometimes what we do is we sort of bypass that. Is that somebody walks in, you know, and you, you assume that what they're after is weight management, or you assume that what they're after is that they want to run a marathon, or you know, whatever it is. What we do is we assume without, and we sort of bypass what their what their specific goals are. Absolutely fundamental that we focus on those. Why? Because what we want to make sure is that we have a, an idea of where we're trying to take that individual. And so, therefore, what we do with them is molded around that. But equally, I think, with regard to medium and short-term goals, we can actually use those to, to track progress, to monitor how things are going. Like I have this concept where, where it's, it's profile, prescribe, monitor. That profiling approach is actually understanding the client. What do they want to achieve? Where are they currently at then you prescribe based upon that knowledge and then what you need to do is monitor that over time and, and I monitor that with with the, the accomplishment of short-term goals and then what you can do is reflect on those you get an understanding of where the individuals come from what what gains they have made what where they may not have made gains and you can then actually then so effectively what you're doing is reprofiling the individual you can then prescribe again and by doing that what you're doing is you're molding it constantly to that individual, you're making it more and more specific to that individual, and that that really is the is the key to quality coaching is tailoring it, and and it's not something that you that you'll do on, in a first session. It's something that molds over time. Okay, that's quite interesting. And um, this is a question I had for you: should should you have a backup plan if visionary success doesn't work? And what is that? So say so that again, James. If, if you've should you have a backup plan if visionary success doesn't work, and what, and if so, what is it? I mean, you know, I talk a lot about this in the book, actually. And this, I mean, I, I, I along with you know, good friends of mine within the sort of psych psychology sector, Andy Lane in particular, you know, we talk about if then strategy. And, and I think you know, the bottom line is that, that I guess to some extent that there are there are there are those factors that there are those determinants which are uh, absolutely required to be successful. Um, but at the same time, there are lots of risks to you being successful, to you delivering to those goals. And I think what, what, what I spend an awful lot of time at, on, particularly when it comes to, you know, I mean, ultra endurance is a classic example of that, you know, is that there are lots of things that can go wrong along the way, um, whether it's in the training or particularly when it's in delivering, in other words, at the event itself. And I think what, what you have to do is create a structure where you, you've, you've effectively put a fine tooth comb through those. You've identified what those risks, risks are. And in doing that, what you do is you create solutions. So, so to some extent, what you do is you're lessening the risk that they, that they can, they can actually uh, create for your success, your challenge. Um, and I think if, if you do that, 
part of that process is actually planning. Uh, so, so, so that, so that what, what, I mean, in, in general, we've got this sort of algorithm and that is, have I been successful at this, at this stage? If the answer is yes, then move on. If the answer is no, then why haven't I been successful? So it's a process of, of reflective practice. And so what you then can do is actually instill or install solutions to those problems, which keeps you moving forward. And, and I think often the reason why people sort of fail and stop is because what they haven't done is they haven't recognized the potential risk. They haven't created a solution. And so basically that, that becomes the stopping point on their challenge. So it, it, it's uh, without any shadow of doubt, it's about planning. You have to think about these things ahead of time. You can't, sadly, unlike some things in life, you cannot wing when it comes to physical performance. You can't wing it. And, and also, what other tools can you use to keep yourself on track, Greg? Beyond the, the, what you've explained, I mean, one of the things that I, I'm including in that, I think, because you know, I, I think to some extent, what we always believe is that we're individuals, and actually, I don't think, I mean, nothing, nothing good is achieved alone. I think that's a really important point, and I think it is about your team, um, and, and I think what, what what you should do, you know, so you know, if you're a personal trainer, don't don't be a personal trainer alone. You know, you, you've got people around you, you've got other personal trainers. Um, you've got personal trainers who actually might know more than you, uh, particularly in, in specialist areas. So think about constructing a team of people who know things uh, that perhaps you don't know. Perhaps they've got experience that you don't have. You know, equally, make sure you've got a team of of specialists. You know, so you know, for example, this podcast is is one element of that. It's actually building a a resource around you where you can actually access the right information from the right people. And, and then, you know, things like physiotherapy, you know, have a great physiotherapist that you refer through to, have a relationship with them, build a relationship, because what that means is that your client, when, when they get a problem, you, you've got somebody you can trust, you can send them to, you can actually communicate with them, find out what's going on, and you get resolution to the problem much quicker. You know, so, so I think what, what, you know, there's an awful lot of great people around, and I think what we don't do is we don't make enough of that often enough. So I think you know all of these things are brought together by a team. Get the right team around you, and you have a lot more success. Well, that's that's quite an interesting point in terms of from a personal trainer perspective. It's 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 quite hard to to fathom a little bit because of the nature of the industry because it's quite cutthroat. You're thinking, like you're saying, <laughs> work as a team, but I think it's probably a cultural thing in terms of it's a coming back to that dog eat dog whereas that's your competition how can I actually work with that individual but where I worked it was kind of the norm to not as be as cutthroat but then like I said that's a cultural thing so it's kind of finding that balance and trying to well like you said it's if you don't know something it's going to somebody with more experience whereas in most cases, probably PTs can't do that because uh, that person might perceive it as, if I teach you this, you become more of a threat to me. You're right. And I think what that comes down to is trust. And I think what you've got, to, you, you as an individual have to create trust in others. Uh, and, and you have to work with people that you trust. Because I think, I think you're actually, I mean, it is a competitive world out there. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, but I think also what, what you've got to think about, for me as a PT, what you have to think about is that 
yes, you can be a generalist, PT. And I think to some extent, we've all got to be generalists uh, working in, in sort of this environment. But equally, what you can do is create your niche. You know, so if, if you if you become a specialist at, at working with with expectant mothers, for example, um, or you become specialist in working with obesity, or you become specialist in working with with uh, with pediatrics, for example, yeah, with children. You know, what what you do is you create an expertise, and if you get the right team around you, and I, you know, this is how I run my business in in Harley Street. You know, we've got we've got an amazing business. Um, but we we do very specialist things at our place. But what we what I have got is I've got a network of people around London in particular because that, that's fundamentally where we're based. But a network of people who we refer to. So I, I don't have an in-house pain specialist, for example, but I do have a guy that we refer out to. And why don't you know? Could we do that ourselves? We definitely couldn't do it as well as the as as the guy that I refer to. And and um, what what you find then is actually that when you're what you do is you get a, a two-way trust. So what he'll do is he'll actually refer back to us clients that he knows that we can deal with better in particular areas. So so again, you've got this two-way flow of people that creates further trust. And critically, I think for the client, for the client you're working with, what the client knows is that what you will do is you'll do your best for them. Uh, and what you're not doing is you're not holding on to clients just because you know just because you want to keep that client and and believe you me i've seen some horror stories in my time we had a guy come in who's having physiotherapy twice a week for two years now our clinic you won't spend more than six sessions with a physiotherapist before being referred to somebody else because if they can't if they can't find a solution in six weeks then you're in the wrong place and i think what what you have to think about culturally is actually about creating a very positive external name for yourself. And that comes about by looking after the client and ensuring that you provide the best quality product for that client. How do you do that? You do that with the best people around you to make sure that you can optimize that delivery. Okay, that's, that's, that's probably a good take-home point for, for well, not just people in the fitness industry, but probably people in life. Because to kind of generalize my point, that's coming back to obviously well Christmas and dieting uh that's probably where most people struggle is because they've either not got that support network behind them when they start that journey to lose weight or well that would generally the most most cases that is what somebody's goal is, or they get victimized or you're not losing weight, so it's actually which is supposed to be your closest support network is your family, and they're probably, in some cases, the harshest critics. So it's probably <laughs> when somebody does start on, on that goal of well, exercise, I, I should say, um, would you advise that they have a good support network in place to, to one, keep them on track and accountable, and also they've got kind of somebody there for support if when it's not going quite right i mean 100 percent. i mean there's i mean there's no anything in life is created by a team but i think you know things i mean if you take the average time that somebody keeps up a new year's resolution is 21 days <laughs> so that that tells you everything you need to know you know is that is that you know, making behavioral lifestyle changes, whether it's losing weight, giving up smoking, becoming more active, 
all of those things are very difficult things to do because it, it requires behavioral change. But you know, one of the key, I mean, there are lots of, and, and Achieve the Impossible, the, the book really sort of does focus on, on that process. But there's, there's no doubt about it that actually the people that you wrap around yourself are crucial and, and they have to be fully supportive. And, you know, just because it's, just because it's your husband or your wife uh, or just because it's your mum or dad doesn't necessarily make them a, a key element in your team. Uh, because what what they have to do is they have to believe in what you're trying to do, number one. They have to believe that you can do it just as much as you believe that you can do it. Um, and, and because what they're doing is they're providing that support network around you in order to actually provide what, you know, what the key thing being, I mean, it's belief, commitment, and motivation are the three things I always talk about. Number one, you have to believe it, and your team around you have to believe it. You have to commit to it. So if you believe, what you will do is actually commit. So you commit more time, you commit more resource, you commit more effort. And then by doing that, what you then start to see is you'll start to see success. And particularly if you measure it in short-term goals. So every time you reach a short-term goal, that becomes, that, that becomes a marker of success. That starts to build your motivation. The more motivated you are, the more you believe. And so therefore, the more you commit and it becomes self-fulfilling. Uh, and what, what you don't need as part of that process is you don't need you don't need what you, you need constructive criticism, you know, but that is very, very different from those people who are doubters and who are subversive and who are trying to undermine what you're trying to achieve. And, and sadly, there are quite a few people out there like that. So create the team, make sure the team believes in what you're trying to do, make sure they're committed to you achieving it. And, and make sure that what you do as you go through the process, make sure you bring them along with you. Make sure you make them feel part of the team. Because if you do that, they will remain engaged with you and they remain supporting you. So don't don't go isolation, go team, and you're much more likely to be successful. Well, that's definitely a point I agree with because you've got to be, if you did go single-mindedly, you've got to have a, a very strong will to be able to get from point A to point B. Whereas if you had that support network in place, be it if you are a strong-willed person, it probably make life a lot, lot easier and that goal a little bit more uh, achievable. Whereas in most cases, the people do go try and do it, go it alone, and like you said, they 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 stop within the first three weeks of taking something up whereas if you had that support network in place would you carry on would you carry that on beyond that point okay it's probably a generalization there in most cases most people probably would succeed more so and you wouldn't have this uh how would i put it um trend where people are going you could virtually time it like clockwork uh, with people joining the gym and then as a New Year's resolution every year, and it's most of the cases, it is the same individual every single year. So they'll go for that three week period, stop, not go to the gym for well eleven months, and then be back again. And most people can can time it like clockwork. Okay, the the those people will be back in a year's time, and that's probably the. We could either look at it in a positive or negative way in terms of the fitness industry. They know that people will come back because that's their goal of losing weight, but they're not being helped and supported to actually 
progress beyond that. So they're kind of in a vicious circle. Okay, from from where I see it as a negative, okay, they only use the, well, more so the corporate side of the fitness industry probably looks at the mem- the member as a number so they're not fussed if they don't go to the gym because they're stuck in uh, six or 12 month contracts which you can't get out of so you'd be paying you know if you don't go whereas the ones that do go probably don't get the support that they need because uh, those are quote unquote the members that the gym doesn't actually want because they're having to fix equipment because it's being used whereas the ones that don't go they don't have to do anything, but they're still getting the benefits of the of the person's cash. <laughs> I didn't realise you were a sceptic, James. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I, I, I think the one thing I would say is I, I think I mean I'd probably be, be a bit fairer to the fitness industry. I think what what the fitness industry want is they want they want proactive people, they want active people, they want people who are achieving things because because what they become is they become their advert. You know, there's nothing there's nothing better than word of mouth uh, word of mouth promotion of your facility or of your PTs or of your you know physiotherapist service or whatever that service is. And, and you know, I know this. Is that there's no better way of doing that than somebody recommending you because they've had a great experience, and I think what to some extent what 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 gyms are looking for is not that, that, that you know they don't worry about people who don't come down because they're getting their money anyway. Actually, what they want is they want a proactive community. You know what they want is they want a gym which is full of people who are who are working very hard to achieve those great things in life because what that then that becomes infectious. And what that also then does, it means lots of people are achieving things. That means that that facility, the PTs that working there, the physiotherapists, etc., are obviously providing an amazing service. And so therefore, that is the gym to be a member of. So, so I think you know that that's that's where you want to think about it. But all of that, you know, it comes back down to the same thing, and that is it. It comes down to to the team because to some extent, if you go to a class, if you go to spinning class, um, you know, and you're a regular member then you know part of that team is the instructor but the other part of that team is actually the, the other the other guys in the room who are regular goers as well because they create that motivation they create that 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 atmosphere which keeps you going keeps you working hard so i think you know there are still people who think they do it alone but actually i i very very rarely and this is probably age gives me this i very rarely see anybody if ever see anybody who has achieved something great, whatever that great is, whether it's weight loss, smoking cessation, or the marathon de Saab or swimming across the English Channel, they never do it alone. Okay. Well, those those are probably, like, marathon de Saab is probably, uh, like you say, is an ultra run, so that one's kind of the upper echelons of uh, fitness, isn't it? I was, I suppose you, you, you wouldn't say to somebody... Have you have you never exercised before? Let's go and try and do this because the the willpower and staying power to complete it would be quite difficult because they haven't got the uh, physiological background and to be able to perform it because they're not not as fit. Because so they you've got to have some form of exercise background before you take on well you should in theory have it before you take on something of that nature 
hundred percent, mate. <laughs> I'm, I'm using it as an example, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think I think that's the, you know, to some extent. I mean, I, you know, I, if you think about physical activity, physical activity is a, a spectrum along which we all lie somewhere. So one end of the spectrum is activity for daily living. It's washing the car. It, it's 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 doing uh, the vacuuming. It, it's walking to the corner shop, and at the other end of that spectrum are elite athletes, the ultra-endurance athletes. And so you know, we all reside somewhere along that spectrum. Um, and I think the important thing, for me, the important thing about that spectrum is that there is the possibility to move up it, almost irrespective of who you are. Um, I, you know, I, I, so if you are currently inactive, there is every possibility that you could do the Marathon de Sable, yes, if you, if you wish to. Um, it is going to take you a much longer period of time because of the, the journey that you've got to take in order to get there. But equally, it can still be a vision. You know, kilt can still be your long-term goal. So I think to some extent, what, what, what we should never do is actually is partition it as if, oh, well, you know, those, those type of events are only open to those people who are already physically active or you do a lot of running or a lot of swimming, you know, who are competitive. It's absolutely untrue, particularly when it comes to actually completion of these things. You know, are you ever going to race it? Is, is something completely different? But for me, I think that what we shouldn't, what we what we do in society to some extent is we close down, uh, we reduce expectations of people by by compartmentalising it. And actually, what we should do is open it up because I, you know I've seen some incredible things. I mean, I, I worked with a guy uh, who had a heart transplant, a guy called Kevin Mashford, an amazing guy. Um, and two years post-transplant, he cycled 360 miles from Bristol to Newcastle. I mean, if he'd have, if he'd have asked any of his support team prior to surgery if he could do that, the answer would have been impossible. And yet, here he is. He's actually able to move. He's not. He's at the very bottom of that spectrum. You know, his, his mobility, his activity was virtually zero. And yet, two years later, he's cycling. 360 miles so so for me let's let's, let's not let's not compartmentalize it let's not put brackets around, around people or what we should be doing is actually providing opportunity for people to get to where they want to get to well i think some 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 people greg probably put that on themselves compartmentalized as they look at uh, say the olympics and the paralympics every four years okay that's that's not realistic for me to ever achieve, or I, I won't try and do be too competitive, or say, oh, this was like more so after London with the Paralympics. Would I think scope was kind of put a survey out in terms of uh, did the Paralympics portray a negative light on disability? I was thinking, well. Well, for me being a disabled individual and being able to have competed at that level, I can see where you're coming from from one standpoint, but that's generalising a population uh, to kind of suit your argument. Well, okay, yes, not everybody, and that's something you probably attest to as well, not everybody is going to get to the elite level. That's fact. It's You've got to have some form of talent and put in place uh, that, that, well, developing your talent to get to that level, having support network along the way to kind of guide you and get you to actually fulfil those those goals of yours. Uh, and 
obviously my point would be on that one would be okay we we have had that mindset to get to that one that's generalizing i i wouldn't want i wouldn't com- even compare myself with somebody with the same disability i i wanted to achieve that that's that's very much my my emphasis somebody else might have not wanted to do that so you can't you can't generalize between uh, even in within a population in terms of is it a bad bad thing to uh, want to achieve your goal and okay it probably puts a negative connotation on somebody else because okay why can't you do that but then that's coming back to that uh, point you were raising about kind of putting somebody in a box in terms of these are your limitations. You can't go beyond these. So it's saying, well, it's your personal choice if you want to do exercise or push yourself beyond your boundaries. It's it's not for me or somebody who's competed at elite level to say, well, you can and can't do that. Absolutely right. I mean, I guess that's exactly what I'm saying. Is that you know, I mean, you're right in, in the sense that some, you know, where are the boundaries put? Boundaries are put by individuals on themselves, uh, and, and then equally, boundaries are put upon them by society. And whether that is you know, close proximity, so it's close family, friends, um, whether it's the broader society. Um, but you know, I, 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 you know, I, the bottom line. I guess the point is that what you can do if you want to do something. Now, you're absolutely right. There are some things that are potentially unachievable I will never go to the Olympics again um, as an athlete uh, because I'm you know I'm coming up 50 next year uh, and, and the bottom line is the type of performance is required now that said perhaps I could, I could do a sport that possibly I could get to where age is not the delimiter um, but the, you know the bottom line is there are, there are obviously some things that are going to be much more difficult nay impossible um, but but I think the thing is that what we should do is just deconstruct that and not not place those boundaries on people you know, for me, the, the greatest thing that I ever watch at the Olympic Games is the Paralympic Games. I mean, forget the Olympic Games. The, the Paralympic Games, absolutely incredible. Because what they are doing there is demonstrating exactly that point, is that where society would like to place boundaries on people, you can actually see what can be achieved, incredible things that can be achieved. So, so I, think, I think to some extent it is about, it's just about creating the environment within which people can do what they want to do. That might not be anything to do with physical activity. I mean, well, sport anyway, at least, exercise and sport. But if that's what they want to do, what we should be doing is creating an environment where they can at least have the opportunity to take that up. It's definitely a, a good point that you raised there, Greg. So in this section of the podcast... I'm going to open it up to uh, listeners and followers on YouTube to ask questions to the guests. So on today's show, uh, Martin Lansley asks, is beetroot really beneficial for endurance events? And if so, when and how much should be consumed before a race? <laughs> uh, you know what? It's an interesting one. I think supplements in general are really very interesting. I mean... Andy Jones is the guy down at uh, Exeter who's done most of the work on this. He's a friend of mine. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know what, what is it? I guess one of the things to look at first off is you know what is the mechanism of it. Well, fundamentally, what what we believe is that it's a, a effectively a, a donor 
which allows greater vascular control. In other words, what it does is it enables greater blood flow to working tissue. And that's sort of the premise of it. Um, and, and so it effectively can impact on things like blood pressure. Um, does it work? I mean, there's good evidence in the literature. And I think that's the next place to stop. What's the quality of evidence that supports its mechanism? And I think that there's good evidence that the, that, that beetroot, it's not, I mean, beetroot juice per se, but it's the active ingredient in beetroot juice nitrate, uh, which is the interest, which is the, the key thing. Um, there is good evidence that it does affect physiology. So it, it does affect blood flow. It can alter blood pressure, particularly in hypertensive, those with high blood pressure. Um, the the next question is, does it does it impact on performance? And what is the level of, of, uh, of evidence to say whether it supports it or not? And I think there's, there's good evidence to support that it improves um, time to exhaustion, um, which is an interesting one because it's, it's relatively non-ecologic, is that, that there is no event that we do um, which is time to exhaustion. Um, because, you know, effectively everything we do, particularly in the sports context, is point A to point B. And it's either as fast as possible or it's survival. It isn't a keep going as long as you possibly can until you drop. Um, so there's good evidence for it, but you wonder about the ecological validity for it. When you take a look at time trial performance, what you see is that the effect is much, much smaller. Um, and it moves to sort of in the region of about sort of 1% improvement in performance. Now, that, that, can, that can make a big difference. I mean, it can be the difference between on the grass and on the podium at the, the, the elite level. Um, that said, much of this work hasn't been done in elite athletes. It's been done in in you know, sub elite, so you know, good club athletes. Um, does it work? I think I think there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that it might work. Um, is it is it worth doing? Um, I mean, that that comes down to personal preference. How much should you do? I guess the thing to always remember with these areas is that. Everything in life is toxic at a, at a level. So water is toxic. Uh, oxygen is toxic if you take excess. Um, so it's not the, it's not more is better philosophy. Uh, what you should do is actually take as suggested and then work very closely. And again, what you need to do is individualize that to yourself. Um, so as I'm probably coming across there, I'm not a massive supporter of beetroot juice or or, or it's uh, active ingredient but equally i'm not a big supporter of supplements in general okay and then the other question he's got for you uh i have a problem digesting wheat for longer endurance events which makes carbo carbohydrate loading on pasta a real problem although shorter events up to 5k are generally okay what other options are there for carb loading that will give me the same benefits as pasta as my body feels pumped, ready to race when I've loaded up with pasta, but I don't get the same feeling on rice or potatoes? Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming what he's feeling there is sort of probably bloatedness. Um, I mean, you know, question mark whether it's celiac or not, probably not, but, you know, the, the bottom is when you bombard the volumes of, of carbohydrates, you can often get gastrointestinal upset. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is that actually for 5K, you don't need anything. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, carbo loading for a 5K, I mean, almost almost worthless. I mean, you, you carry so much glycogen on board um, that unless you're in a very very depleted state, there really is no need for for 5K, 10K, you know, even longer. Um, I, I think when it comes to ultra. Having optimal stores uh, of glycogen are really important, without any shadow of a doubt. Um, 
it, it does depend how ultra you go. I mean, there's definitely a school of thought now that what we can do is actually start to utilize fats better. So we become what, what, what sort of common parlance is fat adapted. Um, and I, which I think is an, is, is an interesting concept. It's a very broad debate to be had. And I think that, that interestingly enough, things like this tend to polarize people. They are either pro-fat or they're pro-carbohydrates and, and never the twain shall meet. I, I think to some extent w- w- what you are looking at is somewhere in, in the middle uh, is that becoming a little bit more fat adapted is definitely beneficial for the, for the as you go long, um, particularly as you go into ultras. Um, and in ultras, actually what you can use, you can use fats uh, and protein as your fuel source rather than actually using carbohydrates as the fuel source. And so therefore you can feed with that. I think some in the middle ground between it, you know, up towards marathon. Well, you know, I mean, there are benefits to be had by both. And I think what, what you should, what probably the best advice for him is just to try and find, find, find the product. I mean, if, if it is the loading that's creating the problem, then the bottom line is that, that I would stop loading uh, number one. And what I would do is I would actually work over a longer period of time. So, you know, traditionally we used to think of, of carbo loading of being, a starvation period followed by a very large load of, of carbohydrates over three to five days. Um, we sort of migrated now to a single day pre-race of very high carbohydrate intake. But I think equally, if, if you're struggling with that from a GI perspective, what I'll be doing is actually just building in, building in, replenishing those stores with a taper, so, so concomitant to a taper um, over a longer period of time. And what you'll get is you'll get a lower GI distress with that. Um, Equally, tack on top of that, some fat adaptation, in other words, some, some of the longer efforts uh, with low-carbohydrate environment. Um, so, you know, classically early morning in a, in a relatively starved state, uh, and, that, and that will support that as well. So, again, classically, it's becoming a little bit more individualized and bespoke with, with what you're doing. But if loading isn't working for you acutely, stop doing it, because the GI distress that you get with that will be much more detrimental to performance than any of the carbs that you're putting in the system. Well, some very useful tips that you raised there, Greg. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. If anybody wanted to ask uh, any additional questions, what would be the best form of way for them to contact you via social media? Well, interesting enough, I'm actually I'm just devising a new uh, a new website. Uh, in the new year so that that's that's not live yet it's coming soon and it's exactly for you know i mean amongst other things it's actually about comment and uh and uh, and discussion boards but not discussion boards between people basically question asking asking and, and answering um but in, in the meantime twitter is by far the best way uh, and i'm at gp white w-h-y-t-e so at gp white uh, and i'd like to think i'm pretty good at answering people's questions in that, as best of that I can in 143 characters. <laughs> well, that, that makes it life a little bit more challenging, doesn't it, to be able to answer a question in that, those 140 characters. It, it definitely does. You've got, you've, you've got to know what you're you talking about, with more. you've got to be able to translate that in a very short period of time, so that's the key. <laughs> well, a lot of times you've got to make up, well, not make up words, but uh, trying to find a character for a word... Um, just to to make it to make it, but then it's got to be understandable as well. What makes it quite challenging at times. Good, 
Yeah. Oh, that's nice though. I like it. I like it. I like a challenge. <laughs> so if anyone's got any questions, just ask away. Okay. So th- thank you very much for coming on the show, Greg, and taking the time out of your busy day. Thanks for having me, James. It's been great. I've enjoyed it. And for everybody else, this podcast will be aired every Thursday. So Thank <laughs> you.